Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our Year of Reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poesy, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen. And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. At a moment in The Island of Missing Trees, Elif Shafak writes that In real life, unlike in history books, stories come to us not in their entirety, but in bits and pieces. Broken segments and partial echoes. A full sentence here, a fragment there, a clue hidden in between. If this is so, then despite being steeped in painful real events, specifically those leading up to the division of Cyprus in 1974, the island of missing trees is much closer to real life than a history book. It's a many-threaded story that straddles a continent, Europe, an epoch from the 1950s until today, and even the boundary between species. For one of the book's characters, in many ways its main character, is neither human nor animal, but, well, we'll come to that in our discussion, I'm sure. William Boyd called The Island of Missing Trees a wonderfully transporting and magical novel that is, at the same time, revelatory about recent history and the natural world and quietly profound, while Robert McFarlane declared it a brilliant novel, one that rings with Shafak's characteristic compassion for the overlooked and the underloved, for those whom history has exiled, excluded or separated. Elif Shafak, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and it's so nice to have you back at Shakespeare and Company, um, if only virtually for now. Um, where I'd like to begin our conversation today is where the book itself begins, actually, because there are so many different characters, so many different ways into the book. But you begin your story with Ada. Um, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. Ada or Ada, as we say in France, what would be? I would say both. I mean, in Turkish, it would be Ada, meaning mm-hmm. island. But having grown up in the UK, probably she would call herself Ada. So either way. Mm-hmm. OK. And that's a very important point, actually. So um, Ada grew up in the UK and in many ways is the, I guess we could say, almost the culmination of the story that you are you are telling in uh, in the island of missing trees at least the sort of so much so many of the different stories that you will unpack in this book ultimately feed into um making ada the person she is and making her react in the way she does to um a specific situation which we'll talk about in a minute but why was it important for you to start essentially with the the destination of this story ada rather than with her parents and their backstory. Well, thank you. You know, I'm so glad we started with this because in many ways, it was one of the central questions in my mind. I wanted to think about inherited pain. Mm -hmm. Does such a thing exist? I've been observing so many families of immigrant backgrounds, families in exile, but also families with complex backgrounds and histories. And it's very interesting for me to see these generational differences. The first generation, I would say, those are the ones who have experienced perhaps the biggest traumas or displacements, but they don't necessarily have a language to Mm -hmm. speak about these things. The second generation doesn't want to talk about the past usually Mm -hmm. because they're busy adapting, finding their feet, you know, building a new life. But it's then the third or fourth generations, in other words, the youngest in the families, who are asking the biggest questions about identity, the mm-hmm. stories of their ancestors, where do we come from, you know? So you might meet old, young people with old memories, mm-hmm. sharing the memories of their grandparents. Um, so this is a book that very much deals with intergenerational trauma, memory, the things we find difficult to talk about in our families, both family stories, but also family silences. Mm-hmm. 
it seems like in a way such a such an obvious idea that grief and that trauma can be passed down the generations and it's, it's something we're very um comfortable with talking about on the subject of genetics for example that characteristics or illnesses can be passed down from one generation to another but it seems often we are quite um squeamish a little bit about talking about these sort of things particularly when it goes several generations back as affecting the uh the lives of as you say second or third generation uh immigrants which is very interesting because as you said when it comes to physical illnesses or it doesn't necessarily have to be an illness physical mm. traits we're more willing to recognize how things can be passed down from one generation to the next but equally i mean in this book nature plays an important role mm. so there are very interesting um studies that show trees that have experienced some kind of trauma mm-hmm. um react differently to upcoming traumas mm-hmm. and so trees that have descended from ancestor trees that have experienced some kind of trauma might also react differently so we're we're also willing to recognize it in the animal world and in the mm. world of plants but not so much as you said when it comes to human beings but i think these are important conversations to have mm. and it shapes us not only the s- stories that we hear the memories that we hear but also the absences the things mm-hmm. that we might not know much about but nonetheless they're there uh, and through the silences through the unspoken words still things can be transmitted from one generation mm-hmm. to the next and i think many young people are really asking these questions right now mm-hmm. and i think definitely that sort of that sort of feeling it but not being able to necessarily articulate it is definitely the situation we find with Ada at the very beginning of the book. So we meet her and she's in a, a history class. And um I think I could talk about this because it's right at the beginning of the book it's not giving too much away, but she she has this kind of strange sort of sensation overcome her and the only thing that she can I was going to say can think to do but it's not even necessarily something reflected upon like that but she just she stands up and she screams. often you would come across something like this in a book and you think like sort of oh i think writers would often be uh reluctant to include it in a book because it might not sound uh particularly believable whereas in fact we know from our own experience and from the experience of people around us that we have these kind of inexplicable sort of psychological reactions on a day-to-day basis yes absolutely and also i think especially right now where we are in this moment in time with the pandemic with the climate crisis clearly accelerating in front of our eyes and 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 widening inequalities deepening inequalities across the world mm-hmm. i think many people feel like there's a scream building up inside so mm-hmm. both individually but collectively we have a scream waiting to be unleashed mm-hmm. and it's quite ironic because this was supposed to be an age in which we were all in which we would all find an equal voice thanks to the spread of digital platforms everybody was going to have a voice and yet the truth is so many people across the world east and west feel voiceless mm-hmm. people feel like their voices are unheard mm-hmm. so i i i'm very interested in that and if i may add this i don't know if you've seen this picture of this elderly lady from the wildfires in Greece in Turkey in Greece we mm. had horrible wildfires and this woman who has lost everything her village her home her, the world that she she has known it's incredibly painful somebody on social media had turned that photograph into a painting mm. and it strangely res- resembles Edward Munch's painting the famous painting the scream mm. in which actually not the person at the center but the whole surrounding world is screaming mm-hmm. so all i'm trying to say is it's not only human beings that are screaming it's nature itself it's trees mm-hmm. too as our world is being destroyed it's just a matter of hearing so in many ways i think for me scream was an important symbol mm-hmm. and it's so this is uh, you've mentioned trees a couple of times and this is the uh, elusive extra narrator i was talking about um in the introduction um and so uh as this is this may be quite a strange thing for our listeners to to hear if they if they haven't read the book because the idea that a a tree could be um could be could be articulating a story uh 
feels quite left field, feels quite sort of um, off the wall. And yet when you read it in, in, the, in the Island of Missing Trees, it feels very natural. It feels almost as if the story couldn't have been told without this non-human, non-animal perspective. Uh, and I'm curious to know, in the conception of this book, in the development, in the writing, when it became clear to you that you would have to take this quite uh, radical step of giving voice to a tree? It was a radical step, to be honest, and it was quite challenging and risky because you know, it might not work to have mm-hmm. a tree speak, um, can be even off-putting. So it was a risk, but the truth is, I have been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been reading about it, researching, thinking about it. Obviously, this is a beautiful island with beautiful people you know, on both sides, but it's also a very difficult story to tell. Because the past is not a bygone affair. The mm-hmm. past is very much alive and breathing in this very moment. It is a divided island. And also it's a place where there's accumulated grief and mm-hmm. pain. And the wounds are unhealed. They're raw still. So how do you tell the story of a, of a place that has been experiencing this kind of civil war, ethnic violence, partition, without yourself falling into the trap of nationalism? Mm -hmm. How do you tell such a difficult story without yourself repeating the codes of tribalism? That's a difficult thing for an Mm -hmm. author. So I didn't know how to approach the story, and I could never dare, Mm -hmm. until I found the fig tree. And only then, I think, it gave me a chance, a freedom, uh, and maybe a little bit of courage, an opening, Mm -hmm to approach the story from a completely different angle. And if I may quickly add this, when I lived in America years ago in in Ann Arbor, Michigan, it was very cold. And I've seen some immigrant families coming from the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. Italy, for instance, who would bury their fig trees Mm -hmm. when the winters were very harsh. So the fig trees would stay under the ground, buried for Mm -hmm. two or three months, depending on the winter, and then come next spring, they would unbury them. I remember that. And I, I started doing more research. And then you realize, actually, there are many immigrant, immigrant familiar, families who are familiar with that uh, botanical technique that helps trees to survive. So that notion of burying and then unburying the secrets mm. is also a theme that is central for the book. And the tree gave me a chance to think about roots. How does it feel mm. to be uprooted? almost deracinated, but then also be rerouted. So I do care about roots a lot. I'd like to unpick a lot of things you just said, but just as a quick sort of a side point about the the idea of sort of approaching the story and not wanting to be seen as sort of partisan one way or the other. Was that something you felt particularly sensitive about, obviously coming from a a Turkish background of having that sort of uh, the, the reception of the book might, uh, it might, it might be received in a way that people would sort of, branded, in a sense, a kind of a Turkish perspective on the situation? The, the, the thing is, you know, I, I think I, I'm very critical of ultranationalism. I'm very mm. critical of religious fundamentalism and any ideology that divides humanity, humankind into groups and claims that one group is superior to other is, you know, I, I'm something I'm critical of. And I don't think that's the perspective of a storyteller. Mm. You know, for a storyteller, mm. there is no us. There is no us versus them. And actually, the other is my brother. The other is my sister. I am the other. Those are the bridges or those are the connections that I think storytelling very much relies on. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to write because we're talking about clashing memories. Mm -hmm. And those clashing memories are transferred from one generation to the next. I grew up in Turkey with lots of stories about the Greek side, Mm -hmm. just like many Greek people, um, you know, uh, writers, for instance, have grown up with stories about the Turkish side. Mm -hmm. So there are these clashing narratives and we need to find a new language. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we'll talk about this. One of the things that gave me the courage is this actual committee that exists in Cyprus. It's Mm -hmm. called the Committee on Missing Persons. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's incredibly moving what they're doing because Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots are working together. Mm -hmm. And they are literally burying the ground in order to find the bones of the missing. Mm-hmm. Not in order to revive old animosities, just the opposite, but to give the dead, for, first of mm-hmm. all, a proper burial, dignity, but mm-hmm. also the families a sense of closure. 
And and these are the people who are volunteers and they believe in a better, fairer, together, you know, future together. This is an important subject, those exhumations. It's not only happening in Cyprus. It happened in Spain after the Civil War. It happened in Guatemala, in -hmm. Chile, in Argentina, in Iraq, in Bosnia after the genocide. So I think memory is a responsibility Mm -hmm. to unbury the pain of the past uh, in order to build a better future and hopefully never ever to make the same mistakes again. Mm-hmm. And that that idea of closure, I think, is um, is very important, particularly on the the time scale that this book is working on. Because, in a sense, you know, human lives are limited, and if you are, this goes alongside this idea of sort of grief being passed down generations. If you are losing the people who were there when something happened. You're losing a very important connection to what caused the the grief or the trauma and potentially uh, what might help to, to heal that grief and trauma. And that's one thing that I did find very uh, moving about this, this organization um, in, uh, in, uh, that you talk about in the book is this sort of um, this sense that sort of they were racing against the clock, in fact, because there are there. You know, this is something which dates back to the seventies, but it also like a little bit before. And so the people who would have been young then were, are now starting to uh, are old and starting to leave us. And so it sort of it really felt like there was an urgency to this um, this reconciliation that was taking place. Absolutely, and it's very interesting that it's the young people who are very much aware of that urgency. As you said, this committee was formed by United Nations. Mm-hmm. You know, United UN brought um, people together, but at the same time, it's composed of volunteers, many of whom are women, many of whom are young, and there are people of all walks of life, anthropologists, forensic specialists, or just people joining in and helping with the excavations, exhumations. And, and you're very right, they're literally racing against the clock mm-hmm. because when the oldest generations die, there will be no one to tell where the missing mm-hmm. might be buried. Mm-hmm. So it, they understand the urgency of memory. Um, but if I may sidestep for, for a moment, you know, I come from a country that has a very long, rich history in Turkey. That doesn't mean, however, we have a strong memory. Rich history doesn't mean strong memory. I think in Turkey, we're a society of collective amnesia. So when you are a novelist, when you're a fiction writer from such a background, maybe you learn early on that silences matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a writer, you become interested not only in stories, but also the silences, the things we cannot talk about easily. And that's why for me, rather than paying attention to the center, what I'm much more interested in is the periphery, the Mm -hmm. untold stories, or people Mm -hmm. who are are left voiceless, or people Mm -hmm. whose stories have been erased. Yeah. That's what I want to, you know, give more voice to. Mm-hmm. I would contest also that uh, Britain is very much a country that has a sort of a, 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 a strong sense of history, but actually very little knowledge uh, of the the events, you know, the specific events of the history, and specifically the the brutality of British history. Um, you know, uh, in, in the construction of empire and, and things like that. Indeed. And these are very, very important conversations that actually we're having right now across Mm -hmm. the UK. But as you pointed out, not many people want to hear these conversations, Mm -hmm. but I think they're very important. So when it comes to public statues, Mm -hmm. what do we remember? Because statues are not about history. It's about memory, what Mm -hmm. we remember, but it also is about what we refuse to remember, Mm -hmm. right? What we have erased, what we have unlearned. And I think there are many people who rightly say, wait a minute, what about my ancestors' history? Mm-hmm. You know, most of history is actually his story. Mm-hmm. First of all, where are the stories of women? Where are mm-hmm. the stories of, of, of minorities? At the end of the day, I think every nation state has its own official version of oh. the past. In that regard, nation states are similar. Mm-hmm. However, where there is a big difference is... In a democracy, you can walk into a bookstore and you can find many books that challenge, question, and rightly so, that official narrative, which Mm -hmm. is imposed top-down. And the authors of those books are not prosecuted. You can come across journalists who write long investigative pieces, you know, about forgotten stories, and those journalists are not imprisoned. Mm -hmm. In a non-democracy, 
all the other voices uh, are suppressed and one single narrative will be imposed from above. And mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference, of course. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, in a sense, brings us back to the um, the subject of trees, which I'd like to unpick a little bit more because one of the um, perspectives, I guess, that the, the writing uh, from the in the voice of a tree gives you is the it's a non-tribal perspective it's a non-nationalist perspective and also it's a perspective uh which can uh extend over over generations as well the sort of the the time scale on which a tree lives and experiences the world is completely different from a from a human time scale um I'm interested by this presence of trees because I have the feeling that over the last few years, trees have been very much in the sort of the literary zeitgeist. I mean, off the top of my head, I think of um, Richard Powers. I think of Nicole Krauss, um, you know, and, and of course your novel. And they're three very different novels, but all engaging with um, with the subject of trees. And on the nonfiction side, there have been several sort of international bestsellers about the sort of the you know the secret life of trees or what we're starting to to understand about the way that trees live and the way that they communicate um and i'm curious to hear why you think that has happened now is it because of scientific progress and development of our knowledge there or is there something more kind of cultural do you think which has led us to sort of turn to uh turn to trees in this way I think there's an important epistemological shift, but it's mm-hmm. not happening fast enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it has, it needs to happen faster. We tend to think that we are the owners of everything around us as human beings. We think we're the center of the universe, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's quite sad actually how we fail to see trees every day. We walk by trees, but we don't necessarily see them. They are definitely much more sentient than we think and there is even though there has been amazing research about trees especially as you said in the last two decades there's still so much we don't know about them Mm. right the way they communicate under the ground i mean when you think about trees it's so remarkable they make you question uh, your understanding of intelligence because we always attribute intelligence to the brain and that's it. But when you observe the life of trees, actually, you start to think of intelligence in a different way. Mm -hmm. But I think what I'm trying to say primarily is, you know, I think about all these rituals that indigenous tribes, for instance, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I think about all these, the beautiful philosophy, the rituals that many indigenous tribes um, carried with them, and we have forgotten over the years. Mm-hmm. For instance, in, in Anatolia, there were nomadic tribes. One of them is called Tahtaji, like the people of the wood, it's mm-hmm. what it means. Before they would uh, cut down a tree, if they had to cut down mm-hmm. a tree, they would form a circle around it, and they would ask the tree's permission. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds like nonsense, But I understand, you know, that um, way of seeing, Mm -hmm. which we have lost, unfortunately. You will ask a tree's permission only and only if you don't see yourself as above, superior Mm -hmm. to the tree, but you recognize that we're all part of the same ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And that is what we have lost, that sense of connection. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us are trying to say, as our planet is burning, you know, as our only home is burning, we need to reconnect with nature. Mm-hmm. We need to reconnect with trees urgently. And the second thing I need to emphasize is I talk in this book about civil war, ethnic mm-hmm. violence, but it's there's also a part of me that wants to be able to say wherever in the world and whenever there has been ethnic violence, it's not human lives only that have been mm-hmm. lost and destroyed. It's also the lives of animals and plants. Mm-hmm. And these are all interconnected and we need to be aware of those connections too. Mm. You put me in mind of something and I can't remember where I read it now, but this with this interconnectedness that um, throughout history, there have been several examples of when, when civilizations have developed and built up and obviously they generally require more building materials. So they cut down more trees in order to get those building materials. And there's been this kind of... Um, sort of correlation between as soon as the wood runs out, 
the civilization starts to collapse. And that that's it seems sort of very sort of connected to that idea of this kind of codependence between um humans and the 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 natural world that as you say we're starting to learn but maybe well certainly not um not fast enough yeah um as a as a storyteller as well it seemed to me that it's sort of like beyond finding the the voice of the tree uh it seemed to me that it presented you with a lot of opportunities to tell a story in a in a different and particularly in a kind of non-linear way um because i think one thing that is very clear about this book is this sense of sort of when you tell a story in a linear way that's almost like it's only one line that you are drawing through uh a much more sort of complicated situation uh, did did you find that as a as a novelist as like as soon as you had this idea of the tree suddenly uh your your storytelling uh possibilities increased indeed and and as you you know mentioned earlier there's a passage in the book that compares human time and tree time mm. and they're different things yeah. i've never been very fond of this linear time to be honest um i think that's an illusion so mm. the notion that we live on linear time which is by definition necessarily progressive mm. that tomorrow will be more developed and advanced than yesterday is usually a myth Mm-hmm. Now tree time is different it's more cyclical it's more circular and in that sense i think tree time is closer to story time mm-hmm. so when i think about all the stories that i grew up with from my grandmother you now my grandma was not a very well educated woman she had been denied a proper education for being a girl mm-hmm. and yet she very much wholeheartedly supported women's education and this was a woman who was superstitious traditional in her own way like the auntie mariam maybe in in this novel but her house was full of stories oral culture and usually she would tell them in a more circular way like opening one story within a story so there are different ways of telling a story and i think when you think of a tree's perspective let's say mm-hmm. then history acquires a new meaning because trees live longer than us they have seen much more than we have and actually they're wiser than us mm-hmm. because they've also seen the repetitions how we can as human beings we can make the same mistakes over and over so i really think we have a lot to learn from mm-hmm. observing trees and thinking about what i call tree time rather than mm-hmm. human time and the fact i think that um which is very clear in the novel that trees have this a sort of dual existence in a way their overground existence and their underground existence now there's as you talked about the moments of when trees are are buried and this this was something i never heard about before but that's interesting because then the sort of the the dual experience becomes an entirely underground experience for at least a a limited time but i think also there's something um that gives you certain opportunities to explore the idea of grief the idea of trauma like what you see above the surface yeah. is not everything and in fact what's going on under the surface is in many ways more vital to the life and the existence and the health of the tree of what's going above surface than um than than we're generally aware of absolutely which brings us to i think mental health mm-hmm. because there's so much that we still fail to talk about and again i think this is an urgent issue um we we need to talk about mental health we need to talk about anxiety depression the things we accumulate but basically we should also be able to talk about emotions mm-hmm. again where i come from in turkey people think women are emotional men are not which i think uh-huh. is nonsense as <laughs> human beings we are all emotional creatures but here in the uk as well for instance uh, emotions are associated with weakness Mm-hmm. like you're not supposed to talk about them in the public space but why uh-huh. not i think it's an age in which many of us carry an anxiety inside angst mm-hmm. like an existential angst also there's anger there's frustration there's disappointment mm-hmm. understandably and i want to be able to talk about emotions but more importantly what do we do with these emotions mm-hmm. can we turn them into something more constructive and positive both for ourselves as individuals but also for our communities and societies so it's incredibly important and i think the book also talks about mental health especially through one of the characters called Daphne 
because mm-hmm. um, she does carry those sorrows and melancholies and, and maybe mm-hmm. the scars from the past, as you said, not necessarily on the surface, but underneath. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I think for definitely, but I think actually for all of the main principal human characters, whether it be Ada, Daphne, Costas, or Miriam, in, in, in a way, sort of each of them um, gives you an opportunity to sort of explore different aspects of, of mental health and different ways of uh, grappling with processing and um, perhaps attempting to reach closure with the, the grief and trauma uh, yeah. from the past. Yeah, and that's also true for this other character called Aunt Mariam, who is more perhaps traditional. I have met women like Aunt Mariam. You know, I was raised partly by them or surrounded by them growing up in Turkey. And these are women who don't necessarily have a language to mm-hmm. talk about difficult issues, complex issues. And they perhaps naively hold this belief that if they can feed you, if they can cook for you, they can express themselves. You know, food mm-hmm. is a language. So for them, food is always more than food. And mm-hmm. and they also perhaps hope that if we could only sit around the same table and break mm-hmm. bread together, perhaps we could understand each other better. Yeah, so when I look at the geography I come from, uh, in the Middle East and in the across the Mediterranean or Levant, we have these baklava wars right Mm -hmm. the lebanese say it's our baklava the syrians say it's no ours we Turks like to think we make the best baklava and of course (laughs) the greeks call it greek baklava but at the end of the day it's everyone's baklava Mm -hmm. and that's the power of food that's the beauty of food it doesn't care about these nationalistic national borders that we Mm -hmm. take for granted so I'm very interested in in the rituals of food, the history of food, mm-hmm. but also primarily in how it transcends ethnic and national and religious boundaries. Mm-hmm. That that's, that sense of boundaries as well is um, is crucial to the book because um, at at its heart, um, on one of the the, the storylines is a love story between yeah. um, somebody uh, Kostas from the the Greek community in Cyprus and uh, Daphne from the Turkish community in Cyprus. And it's very interesting to me as somebody who didn't know a great deal about the um, the situation in Cyprus, particularly um, pre-division, was the sense of the sort of communities living alongside each other um, with a certain sense of um, sort of coexistence and a certain peace, but also boundaries that still should not be crossed so they so the idea of a romantic relationship between a, a, a greek a greek cypriot and a turkish cypriot was seemed to be very taboo at least um at least in the 70s and it and it, it struck me as a very interesting idea that you could sort of be uh you could live alongside each other but also be separated by mm-hmm. by certain um i guess yeah i guess certain taboos Indeed, and and it's a novel that very much focuses on this notion of forbidden love. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can say there's two types of forbidden love in the book, Um, but the primary one is, as you said, between Kostas, who is Greek and Christian, and Mm -hmm. Defne, who is Turkish and Muslim. So there's also a religious division, and it's not an easy boundary to cross for young Mm -hmm. people. There are also gender codes like sure. which side can be, you know, can a woman come from the other side, then she mm. must be converted to our side. You know what I mean? These expectations. I'm very also very interested in gender boundaries. I'm interested in also other questions, such as how homophobia works, what mm. happens to sexual minorities at times of conflict. So that there, there are several layers mm. to this story of forbidden love. But primarily, of course, I think, you know, love does survive. Love does, mm-hmm. interestingly, find a way, but it doesn't mean it's not scarred. It doesn't uh-huh. mean it's not wounded. And mm-hmm. those wounds are there. So Costas and Daphne, years later, they're able to come together, but mm-hmm. they do carry the wounds. Maybe they experience that differently. One other duality that the book focuses on because of their story, it's not easy for, for people to stay you know, mm-hmm. Daphne stays and Costas leaves. 
And maybe it's a personal question for me too, because I don't go back to Turkey anymore. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's not easy to be an immigrant. I know it's not easy to be displaced or exiled, whatever you call it. But I'm very much aware that it's much, much harder to stay and to mm -hmm. deal with the wounds, to deal with the scars. So Daphne is the one who stays behind. And mm -hmm. so there's that duality explored in the book as well between mm -hmm. those who leave and those who stay. Mm. And that and that sort of um sense of sort of uh the the trauma and the the cause of the scars, one thing that comes across very clearly is sort of how quickly um a sort of a stable situation can escalate into conflict. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, I'm not saying that the sort of, you know, as we said, that the the a relationship between the Greek community and the Turkish community, the Christian Muslim community was never entirely harmonious. But there does seem to be a space over a few years, uh, a few short years in the book, where they go from sort of maybe slightly antagonistic neighbors to all out war and then and then division. And it feels a sort of a a very important lesson, um, particularly now, I think, for the last few years that we've lived through whether we be you know whether in Europe United Kingdom the United States yeah. this sort of that when there are moments of division they are not necessarily followed by moments of reconciliation sometimes they're moments of division which then progress to to conflict even in societies which yeah. broadly looked stable or peaceful before Yeah, and I think what you're saying is so important. This is why we cannot take it for granted. You know, I, I'm always very cautious when it comes to nationalism and nativism and tribalism. Sometimes people say, you know, our nationalism is different than other people's nationalisms. They, they talk about ugly nationalism versus nice nationalism. And I mm -hmm. think that is an illusion. It takes just one political crisis or one financial crisis for a nice nationalism to turn ugly. So mm -hmm. rather than encouraging, promoting more nationalism, I want to talk about multiple belongings. You mm -hmm. know, I want to be able to say as a human being, I contain multitudes, like Walt mm -hmm. Whitman used to say. And we've forgotten that. We don't celebrate pluralism. Mm -hmm. We make it sound as if you can either be one thing, or if, and if not, then that means you're the opposite of that thing. Mm -hmm. You know, which box do you belong to once and for all? And it is those boxes that we need to question. So mm -hmm. when I look at myself, of course I'm an Istanbulite, of course I'm Turkish, and I think those local roots are very visible in my writing. But I'm equally attached to the Balkans, the Mediterranean. I will always carry in my soul elements from the Middle East. I am a Europe, you know, a European. The values that I share over the years, I did become a Londoner, a British citizen. And despite what politicians have been telling us in this country because of Brexit saga. I want to call myself a citizen of the world. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're a citizen of nowhere. It doesn't mean you're floating in the air aimlessly without a care. Just the opposite, you know. You can care about many things. But then they say, well, that's, that's you know, only for people who travel. I don't mm -hmm. think so. Even if you're born and bred and raised in the same town all your life, you still have multiple belongings. Whether it's your sexual orientation, the stories of your ancestors, your ethnic background, you know, many, many layers that compose mm -hmm. a human being. But the trouble yeah. is we forgot to celebrate that. We started mm -hmm. to see that as a problem. And I want to challenge that. I want to defend yeah. multiplicity. Yeah, and I, th I think that's it's also the case that the um, that contention that you are one thing, and if you're not one thing, then you're another thing. Yeah is actually uh, a means of control by the people in power actually because it's sort of it if you can if you can divide people it's easier to rule people if yeah. you can convince people that their neighbor you know the, the person across the ocean or in another town or in another region is their is their enemy then it's easier to do, to yeah. to rule over them in fact yeah yeah absolutely yes but that's how we lose you know coexistence that's how we lose mm -hmm democracy. I think there's a reason why populist demagogues love divisions. They thrive mm -hmm. upon tension. So as people who believe in democracy, we need to do better. We, we mm -hmm. can have disagreements, but what do we have in common? You know, can we communicate across those tribes, epistemological mm -hmm. tribes, is incredibly important. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've spoken a little bit um, in this conversation about the the sort of the the role of the of the storyteller and what the storyteller does. Um, and there's one um, one one little extract which I'd just like to read to you, which I'm I'm very curious to know if it is if it is your view that you're expressing. And I know this is always a very dangerous question to ask <laughs> of a novelist, and particularly after we've just had a conversation about how everyone contains multitudes. But I'm going to jump in and I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> you write, there are moments in life when everyone has to become a warrior of some kind. Mm. If you're a poet, you fight with your words. If you're an artist, you fight with your paintings. But you can't say, sorry, I'm a poet, I'll pass. And I mean, I know this is a perennial debate about how engaged in politics and in issues a uh, a novelist or an artist should be. Um, and I'm just very curious to hear where you feel your position is at the moment. Do you consider yourself a kind of uh, an activist artist? Uh, and by, by that, I don't mean an activist and an artist, but somebody whose art is also there for sort of activist reasons. It's a very powerful question, you know. Mm. And I think I will tell two two things, two layers. For me, as a writer, I think what I like most is to ask questions, including difficult questions about difficult issues. And I love love to create open spaces where a diversity of opinions can be heard, mm -hmm. and then always leave the answers to the reader. Because mm. every reader is going to come up with their own answers. So I don't like it when literature tries to teach or preach something. That is not close to my heart at all. Mm. But I think a writer's job is to ask questions and to open up conversations. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I'm also very much aware of the fact that if you happen to be a writer from wounded democracies or lost and shattered democracies, you don't have the luxury of being apolitical. You know, you can't say, I only want to talk about my fiction. I don't want to talk about what's going on outside the window if so much is happening outside the window and if, it, that, if that bothers your conscience. Also, I am a feminist, and one of the many wonderful things that I've learned from feminist movements of past generations is that politics is not necessarily what Boris Johnson does or Macron says or, you know, political parties do. It is more than that. Uh, and in that sense, the personal is also political. Mm -hmm. So you might be writing about sexuality and gender, but that too can be very political. So in that sense, I, I don't think literature can be non-political. Mm -hmm. And maybe many non-Western authors and also minority authors across the West are more aware of the urgency of speaking up about political issues. But that said, I am a fiction writer. And as mm -hmm. I said, for me, you know, rather than the answers, it is the questions, the freedom of speech, mm -hmm. the freedom of being multiple and open up conversations is, is what I'm really longing for. Mm -hmm. And then leave the answers to the reader. And indeed, based on what you were saying earlier, just just that very action of opening up in itself mm. is an inherently political one. When sure. so many of the forces outside of art are directed towards closing things down, then anything that that works to prise those things open again will, um, yeah. yeah, will be and will have a political impact of um, of mm. some kind. Mm. Um, I also think, um, and I, I, I was. Uh, thinking about this um, when going back over my notes uh, just just today was that sometimes books can be prescient in a way that maybe um, would was not intended. And it was just one line that I noted when somebody's talking about the situation in Cyprus and, and what happened back then. And uh, you just write the line, when Westerners run away like that, it means those of us they leave behind are in deep shit. Yeah. And you know, with everything that's going on in Afghanistan yeah. at the moment, it sort of suddenly struck me that sort of how art can be both sort of political and can, can teach us and can educate us in things that are happening as we speak and that were not dreamed of when the, when the novel was written. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for pointing that out because I think it's so important. And this is a pattern that I've, I think we've seen again and again throughout world history. And do we ever learn? I mean, what is happening in Afghanistan is truly, truly heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And I want to have a more nuanced conversation about what's happening 
you know, without necessarily defending being there, but also the way the, the troops are pulled out so suddenly, so recklessly, endangering people's lives, including especially women's lives, but also mm-hmm. the lives of LGBTQ plus minorities, the lives of human rights defenders, you know, anyone who speaks critically is very much in danger right now. And we cannot do that. Uh, I think, you know, next to the cries of Afghan women, for me personally, everything else feels very trivial. Mm. So how did we end up here? And uh, we need to question. We need to, as global citizens, I think we need to be more engaged. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, 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 I find the situation unacceptable. And people don't realize that what's happening in Afghanistan or in one part of the world doesn't stay there. It has mm-hmm. repercussions, ramifications across the board. We are mm-hmm. all interconnected. Whether we like it or not, this is the reality of the world. So to think that by erecting walls, closing doors, we're going to be away from other people's troubles, it's just an illusion. In mm-hmm. the age of pandemic, in the age of climate crisis or cyber terrorism, how are we going to solve these global problems with the forces of nativism and populist mm-hmm. nationalism? There has to be an international awakening. And I think it's an important moment for global Mm -hmm. solidarity, but also especially global sisterhood. Yeah. And I mean, and that you make me think of the moment when um, the the, the US started pulling out and it was clear the Taliban were going to take over. Mm -hmm. And certain political commentators, all men, talked about, oh, this does appear to be a more restrained Taliban. And you can kind of hear the kind of the grim laughter of women in Afghanistan and across the world sort of uh, and it sort of highlighted to me that sort of the coming back to this idea of multiplicity I mean if that if that is the kind of um, an analysis that you're getting sort of the mainstream kind of yeah. uh, for want of a better word sort of patriarchal analysis yeah. then you know we're just going to perpetuate the same problems again Indeed, and you're so right. I mean, these male commentators, usually they're, they're men, are so ready, so willing to see this thing they call the new Taliban, or they talk about giving them a chance. Mm-hmm. I have seen coverage in Turkish media talking about the elegance of Taliban fashion, what they're wearing, you know, their clothes. So that kind of rhetoric that completely diverts attention from the pain and, and sorrow and fear of people on the ground, of women and minorities, is, is just unethical, unacceptable. And we cannot be this naive, if, 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 this, if it is naivety that is causing it. But um, I, 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 I'm with you. you know, I find these conversations very important. We, as human beings, you know, we owe each other. We are responsible for each other. Mm-hmm. And this idea that you can isolate yourself into groups based on sameness and you will be safer if you do that, it's a populist illusion that has mm-hmm. no reality. We are all mm-hmm. interconnected. Um, I'd like to, before we finish, because we are running out of time, but I'd just like to stay with this idea of of um, sisterhood mm-hmm. and the, the important role that, um, that women need to play in uh, sort of healing the wounds of the world and probably, in all honesty, saving um, saving men from ourselves, to be honest. Um, that's one thing that I found in um, The Island of Missing Trees. The the hope that is contained in it, and there there, there is hope, is all embodied by the women, which is not to say, you know, and I don't want listeners to think that this sort of this is a this is a book which is condemnatory of men. Not at all. I mean, the character of Costas is incredibly empathetic and incredibly kind of uh, sort of gentle, kind uh, a person. But there's definitely something, particularly when uh, we go back to Cyprus and we see. Uh, what has become of Daphne, and we see again this sort of this this commission for 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 missing persons. That there does seem to be something, um, yeah. The seeds of hope do seem to be contained in actions specifically that women are women are taking. You know, I've been uh, listening to people who have taken active part in reconciliation processes in Ireland, in different parts of South uh, America. Uh, 
um, or South Africa, for instance. And it always struck me to see how women have been very active in reconciliation and healing and coexistence. They're both the carriers of memory, but also the, the ones who hopefully build that process of how do we, you know, how do we heal? How do we live together? How do we understand each other? Women can and do play an important, incredibly important role. I believe in a kind of women's movement that is also very much aware of the glass barriers within, among ourselves, whether it comes to race or class or ethnicity or geographical or regional or digital divide. So a much more intersectional feminism mm -hmm. is very close to my heart. And so this is a kind of women's movement that I long for that goes hand in hand with LGBTQ plus rights and mm -hmm. is very much, very much cognizant of the fact that there is no way we can question patriarchy and discrimination unless we do it together. You know, mm -hmm. these are not mutually exclusive. But at the same time, I think I want to be able to say that in a patriarchal society, clearly it's not easy to be a woman, but it's not easy to be a man either, mm -hmm. especially to be a young man, particularly if you do not conform to given descriptions of masculinity. So you mentioned these other gentle um, you know, ways of masculinity that are never, ever being encouraged. Mm -hmm. Actually, you can be ridiculed. You can be shunned. You know, for not being manly enough. So a proper women's movement needs to open up conversations rather than retreat into just same, uh, you know, um, tribes based on sameness. I want to be more diverse and, and inclusive and bring people on board. And I think if we can do that together, men and women and non-binary people and people of all, you know, from all um, sexual minority backgrounds, there is a lot we can change and challenge together. But if we are divided in this way, then the only thing that benefits from it is patriarchy itself. Mm -hmm. That seems like a perfect place on uh, on which to finish. Uh, Elif Shafak, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the Island of Missing Trees is, of course, available from the Shakespeare and Company website or your local uh, independent bookstore. So please do uh, please do track it down. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Elif Shafak, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. For me too. Thank I appreciate you. It. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe and thanks again for listening.